Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. You may remember uh, back in October, we did an entire show about just one neighborhood in the national capital region, Shaw in northwest D.C. We spent the whole hour looking at its past, its future, and of course, its ever-changing present. Well, we've decided to make this neighborhood spotlight, if you will, a bit of a tradition here at the show. So from time to time, we'll be choosing a community and spending an hour bringing it to life on the radio. And this time around, our chosen neighborhood is, well, how about if I just give you a few hints, okay? It's an unincorporated area that hugs Washington to the northeast. Its residents have told us they're especially proud of their ethnic diversity, their relative affordability of homes, and their location just a stone's throw from the district. All right, can you guess? Anyone? It's Silver Spring. Over the course of today's show, we'll look at how Silver Spring has grown and changed and where it might be heading next. We'll talk with insiders in the massive redevelopment downtown. It was pretty much parking lots and auto shops that were around here. And every day I'd walk to the metro and you'd pass nothing. And we'll ask whether some of Silver Spring's lower income residents are being priced out. The rapid escalation of folks who are struggling, I think has got everybody's attention. Plus, we'll visit the home of one of the area's best known residents, a celebrated biologist and conservationist who died 50 years ago this month. She wrote a book called Silent Spring, published in uh, 62, and it was the genesis of the modern environmental movement. But first, we're going to go back in time and visit a silver spring that was little more than, well... Hello. ...than a silver spring. Welcome to the birthplace of Silver Spring. Well, thank you. Jerry McCoy is a historian, author, librarian, and tour guide, as well as the founder and president of the Silver Spring Historical Society. And today, he's asked that we meet in a rather distinctive spot. You weren't joking when you said, uh, the world's largest acorn. Yes, absolutely. The world's largest acorn. I am publicly proclaiming it, henceforth. Oh, so it's not verified. Not verified, but I welcome anyone to prove to me that there's an acorn larger than the one we have in downtown Silver Spring. Okay, so uh, let me explain. At the intersection of East West Highway, Newell Street, and Blair Mill Road, and remember that last one because that name is very important in the story we're about to tell, right at that intersection is a tiny triangle of land known as Acorn Park. It's marked by a little stone grotto and a gazebo shaped like a massive upside-down acorn. And that's where Jerry McCoy and I are standing as he takes me back to the start of Silver Spring, Maryland. Well, the beginning of Silver Spring, Maryland starts in 1830 with the arrival of Francis Preston Blair Sr. in Washington at the bequest of President Andrew Jackson, who had won the White House the year before. Mr. Blair came from Frankfort, Kentucky. He was a newspaper editor, and his good friend Andrew Jackson asked him to serve as the editor of the Washington Globe, which was a Democratic newspaper that represented the policies and the administration of Andrew Jackson. So Blair came up. He um, eventually purchased in 1836 a house diagonally across Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House, which today is known as Blair House, the official uh, guest house of the President of the United States. But uh, befitting a man of his social stature, he needed to also have his country estate. So friends told him that if he took the 7th Street Pike, 
which is today's Georgia Avenue, and take it north above the second rise in elevation, he would be at a high enough elevation to escape the, the heat of Washington in the summertime. And according to the story, he was riding his horse, Selim, and the story goes that uh, something frightened Selim. Uh, Selim rears up. Blair goes flying off the back of the horse. And by the time he catches up with Selim, the horse's reins had gotten stuck in some underbush. And there was a spring site there with water bubbling up. And the horse was lapping the water. And Blair said that there was sand in this water that had mica flakes, which are a metallic. And that when the sun struck the water, it sparkled like silver a silver spring. Ah. So he looked around and thought, this would be a very nice place to build my country estate because it has a ready supply of fresh water. So two years later, construction was started on his country estate, which was pretty nice. It had uh, 20 rooms, nine fireplaces, two kitchens, and a wine cellar. Did he have an enormous family or just lots of guests? Well, he had four children, and most of them were pretty much grown by the time he moved here. But he did have a lot of guests. Uh, Mr. Blair served as the unofficial advisor to 12 U.S. presidents, from Andrew Jackson to Ulysses S. Grant. And many um, heads of state came here to visit Blair. Um, the, The house itself, which he named Silver Spring after the Silver Spring, was just a half a block up from where we're standing. What stands now where the house was? Uh, what stands now is a condominium, just like there are condominiums everywhere in downtown Silver Spring. What do you think Blair would think of how Silver Spring has developed since his day? I, I have thought that. I mean, when he sat here under this gazebo, it was nothing but forest around him. And even when I started giving tours in 1995, none of these condominiums were around us that are here today. And I kept telling people on the tours, you know, Silver Spring's going to be revitalized. It's going to start growing. And one of these days, we're going to be completely closed in by apartment buildings. And I remember people just laughing. It's like, nobody's going to want to live in downtown Silver Spring. (laughs) And sure enough, this has come to fruition. I mean, I I think he would be absolutely astounded. But there are a lot of um, um, nods to Blair. Blair Mill Road, some apartments are named after Blair. Absolutely. Um, Starting with Montgomery Blair High School, uh, that was named after um, one of Blair's sons, Montgomery Blair, who was Postmaster General uh, during the Lincoln administration. So what became of the actual Micah Flecht Spring? Well, in the late 1920s, about 1928-29, when a descendant of um, Blair, E. Brooke Lee, Colonel Lee, He started uh, constructing uh, today's East-West Highway to connect downtown Bethesda to downtown Silver Spring. And it was during that time when they were using dynamite that it collapsed the underground strata of stone and it cut off the supply of spring water. And we're actually standing under this incredible structure here, which I refer to as the world's largest acorn, which it is indeed, probably. But this was built circa 1851-52, by um, a man from North Tacoma, D.C., named Benjamin King, and he was a carpenter. And Blair had commissioned him to design this gazebo that overlooked his spring, and it was his spring, no doubt about it. And he had it um, designed in the um, shape of a giant upturned acorn, because according to the Blair family history, he had proposed a marriage to Eliza Gist, under an oak tree. Um, Abraham Lincoln sat under this gazebo. 
There was even a scene depicted in Steven Spielberg's uh, 2012 movie Lincoln in which Mary and Abe went out to visit Preston, which he was referred to and was referred to in real life, um, Francis Preston Blair. And um, producers for the movie had contacted me about a couple of years before the movie came out. They were searching for artwork for the Blair family crest, which actually exists. And, of course, they weren't going to tell me anything about what was going to be in the movie, but I just knew it's like, oh, they're going to have a scene with Francis Preston Blair. Sure enough, they did. Uh, Hal Holbrook played Blair, although he looked nothing like uh, the real Francis Preston Blair. The Blair family crest appeared nowhere in the scene, and the house they had him living in was completely wrong from the original um, house that um, Blair had built, which you can actually see right over there in the mural up on the wall here. Um, we, we have a beautiful mural here that was done during the renovation of the park by Mame Cohallen, who was a local D.C. artist. And there are five large murals depicting uh, different aspects of Silver Springs history. So it's a really nice little wonderful park here. And I invite everybody to come uh, visit it and commune with Silver Springs history sitting here under the gazebo. Well, Jerry McCoy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. You're welcome. Thank you for coming out. Jerry McCoy is president of the Silver Spring Historical Society and author of the books Historic Silver Spring and Downtown Silver Spring. If you'd like a sneak peek at the world's largest acorn, at least until proven otherwise, you can find photos on our website, metroconnection.org. Going back to Silver Spring, going back to Silver Spring. We'll head now from downtown Silver Spring to a quiet residential street off New Hampshire Avenue, just north of Columbia Pike. It's here in a two-story rambler that what's widely considered one of the greatest environmental books ever was written. Silent Spring, penned by conservationist Rachel Carson, was published in 1962 and inspired a grassroots movement that led to the beginning of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. This month marks the 50th anniversary of Carson's death. To learn more about her life and her impact, environment reporter Jonathan Wilson visited her former home to talk with Diana Post, a co-owner of the property. This is her study, and uh, it's a, a very warm, homey place. She had books lined up over there. We unfortunately don't have those books, but we have the shelves that were there. And, and the paneling... The very plain fireplace and uh, just a warm and uh, wonderful site. It's inspiring to people who come here. We've had people who wanted to uh, record their, their songs here because of the, the inspiration that they gained from looking around and just uh, feeling like it was holy ground. So how similar is this room to how it was when she was writing? As far as paneling, exactly. Her desk was um, near that window, and she had a record player. That's pretty much all we know. We don't know that much about it because there were no photographs except for the photographs taken by uh, the people from CBS who interviewed her here, and they uh, created the program The Silent Spring of Rachel Carson which was a very important step in the acceptance of her 
work and the acceptance of the problem with pesticides. So she did get attention uh, when she wrote the book. Yes. There was a uh, commission established by President Kennedy to look into the uh, information in the book, to verify it, or to determine if it was misleading. And they did acknowledge and vindicate what she said was true. We're in the house where she lived. What was her day-to-day life like? Do we know? Well, we know that she was a a workaholic-type person. She loved work. She loved research. She loved poring over facts and um, making them understandable to the public. And this is what she devoted four years to writing Silent Spring to in this house, in either her study or when she wasn't feeling well in her bedroom. So, again, for people who aren't familiar with why she is so revered, what is the easiest way to explain her impact? Well, she she wrote a book called Silent Spring, published in uh, 62, and it was the genesis of the modern environmental movement, the fountainhead, so to speak. And from it grew the EPA. The EPA was founded in 1970, and as a result, they themselves acknowledge of Silent Spring. So there was a, a, a great deal of activity and environmental activity and uh, legislation, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, all were emerging at, uh, in the decades after Silent Spring was published. So nowadays, you know, we hear the word pesticides, and everybody knows to be a little cautious about pesticides, and it's just a com- it's common knowledge. But back then, you're telling me people didn't think that way. Correct. They were in awe of the new um, bright, shiny toys that they had to control weeds, to control insects, DDT, 2,4-D, and some of the others. And they didn't really have enough of the negative information about these chemicals. And the field of toxicology was just emerging. And Rachel Carson contributed to its success. And this is acknowledged by people writing about the history of toxicology. So when she wrote Silent Spring, they realized that they needed to look around, read labels, find alternatives or risk possible harm, possibly cancer or other untoward effects. That was Silver Spring resident Diana Post speaking with environment reporter Jonathan Wilson. You can see photos of the Rachel Carson house and hear more of Jonathan's conversation with Diana Post on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, we'll revisit the Silver Spring War. It was being fought neighborhood by neighborhood. It was being fought in court. It was fought through political action. It was, it was very tough. And we'll find out why this community is such a hot spot for record collectors. When we moved in, it was, wasn't quite as cosmopolitan as it is now, so the rent was cheaper. But it's got a great demographic for us. We need all ages, all races. That's just ahead as our tour of Silver Spring continues here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. 
WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're taking an audio tour, if you will, of Silver Spring, Maryland, and exploring where the community's been and where it's headed. We started the show off in the 1800s, back when the community was founded, and then we zipped ahead to the 1960s as we visited the home where Rachel Carson wrote her famous book, Silent Spring. Well, now we're going to look at a more recent phenomenon, the redevelopment that has transformed Silver Springs downtown. More than 5,000 residential units have been built in downtown alone, with the public and private sectors investing around $2.5 billion in the area. But the redevelopment wasn't always a sure thing. For more than a decade, it divided residents in what was known as the Silver Spring War. Jacob Fenston has our story. In the 1960s and 70s, as the middle class was draining out of D.C., something similar was happening along the old commercial strip in downtown Silver Spring. Literally, offices were leaving, banks were leaving, businesses and stores were all leaving, movie theaters were all leaving. Gus Bauman has lived in Silver Spring for the past 40 years, and for most of that time he's been deeply involved in land use and planning issues. In 1978, he was there on the platform when Metro opened its first station in Maryland, in downtown Silver Spring. It was supposed to jumpstart development, but... Just because a metro station opened didn't mean you're going to have redevelopment around it. At first, there just wasn't the money. No one wanted to invest in a dying area. Finally, in 1986, a developer came up with a plan to raise a huge swath of downtown, replacing everything with a massive mall complex straddling Georgia Avenue. When that plan was released, all hell broke loose. And it led to litigation. It led to a referendum on the ballot. It led to the unseating of the county executive in the 1990 Democratic primary election. The press called it the Silver Spring War, and it was a war. The war raged as plan after plan failed, and downtown's decline continued. Between 1988 and 1996, 220 businesses left the area, and the office vacancy rate rose to nearly 40 percent. In 1989, Bauman became chairman of the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission, where he helped hammer out a new master plan. I wanted the cover to say, I wanted the cover to say, and you can see it, the cover says... The plan for the revival of downtown Silver Spring dated April 1993. That plan would take another 10 years to really get going, but it was the rough draft of today's Silver Spring, a dense, walkable mix of housing, retail, and office space centered around a metro station. It would also be an arts district, starting with the restoration of the Grand Art Deco Silver Theater built in 1938. I kept showing developers the Silver Theater that had been empty since 1983, and was full of rats and pigeons and water. And every developer going through there would say, it will take $25 million to bring this back as a theater. He also contacted AFI. The American Film Institute, who I had called out of sheer desperation. In 1998, Montgomery County agreed to purchase and restore the theater. AFI would operate it, showing independent films, foreign films, and documentaries. Murray Horwitz was the founding director of the new AFI Silver, which opened its doors in 2003. 
it was an emblem of what had happened to Silver Spring. When we reopened, people came with tears, literally. Some people with tears streaming down their faces. We never thought this place would reopen. Thank you so much. Horwitz says the silver played a key role in bringing life back to downtown. The fact that it was and is a movie theater, I think, gave us a, a little bit of a leg up. I mean, had we been a ballet company or had we been an opera company, I'm not sure it would have worked so well as it did. It wasn't just a nice place to see a movie. The new AFI Silver brought people from around the world for festivals and screenings. In a neighborhood that had been deserted at night, suddenly it wasn't uncommon to see a celebrity sitting down at an outdoor cafe. Harry Belafonte in Silver Spring! And I said, get used to it. By the early 2000s, Silver Spring had the elements to recreate a bustling downtown. The final ingredient was people who wanted to live there. It was pretty much parking lots and uh, auto shops that were around here. Silver Spring was counting on people like Evan Glass, who I meet in the downtown neighborhood he moved to 10 years ago. At the time, he'd just finished college in D.C., and he didn't know much about Silver Spring. All I realized is that it was affordable, I could walk to the metro, and I wanted to be here. But as hundreds, then thousands of people moved here to a place that hadn't been residential, Glass says there were some growing pains. There were parking problems, crime, and questions about future development. Glass helped found the South Silver Spring Neighborhood Association to address some of these issues and help build community among all these strangers. You know, in, when you're in a high-rise community, it's very rare that you know who a neighbor on your own floor is, let alone someone two floors below you, and forget about knowing anybody in the building next to you. But that's what we wanted to do. Back when planning started in downtown Silver Spring in the late 1970s, it was hard to imagine urban places like this would again be desirable and sought after. Former county planner Gus Bauman says Silver Spring embraced smart growth before it became a trendy buzzword. Oh, what a new idea. It wasn't a new idea, but it was a nice label, and more and more people found it appealing. Finally, the market had caught up with the planners. And we took off on a tear at that point, and we have not looked back since. Silver Spring is still a work in progress. Right in the middle of all the new development downtown, the old City Place Mall languishes with high vacancy rates. But a major renovation is in the works, while elsewhere downtown, hundreds more apartment units are under construction. I'm Jacob Fenston. Downtown Silver Spring has come a long way. I mean, nowadays you can find all sorts of restaurants there, serving everything from jumbo diver scallops to lamb tartare. You can hit up the farmer's market on Saturdays for organic apples and gourmet goat cheese. You can swing by the AFI Silver to catch an indie film. Or just next door, you can catch a live performance in Roundhouse Theater's Black Box. But many of those amenities are increasingly out of reach for residents living at the bottom of the economic ladder. And as Tara Boyle tells us, the number of people struggling to survive in Silver Spring is on the rise. 
If you'd happened to walk into the Silver Spring Civic Building last Saturday morning, you would have encountered hundreds of people taking part in a conference, a conference about ending poverty as we know it. There are these solutions. Things are happening. Things can happen. It can be done. That's Dr. Pamela Loprest, a senior fellow with the Urban Institute. And so I am a believer now, and I think that that is the place from which we can convince other people to care about poverty and that there is something we can do to end it. Ending poverty sounds pretty good to 54-year-old Silver Spring resident Queenie Featherstone. I meet her during a mid-morning coffee break at the conference. She's wearing a sharp black suit and a broad smile, and you might assume she's one of the policy experts here to give a speech. But that's not the case. I have to find a way to get out of this situation of being homeless. Queenie came today in search of solutions to a very personal problem. Four years ago, her job cut her hours, right around the same time that her rent was going up. Suddenly, her apartment cost $1,000 a month, and she was only bringing in 600 Eventually, she was evicted, and she's been couch surfing or sleeping in her car ever since. She cries as she tells her story. I stay with dear friends or family who open up their home because they know I'm a decent person. I'm not on drugs. I'm not on alcohol. I'm in my right mind. It's just the way the situation fell. That situation has also meant working multiple part-time jobs in the hope that soon she'll make enough money to have her own apartment again. I'm a paraeducator for Montgomery County Public Schools. I work retail. If a job calls me for temp work, I'll go. Because <laughs> hard work never killed anyone, as they say. Ask the experts, and they'll tell you that Queenie's situation mirrors the struggles of many Montgomery County residents, people whose poverty is hidden in one of Maryland's wealthiest suburbs. Elizabeth Kneebone studies suburban poverty at the Brookings Institution. What's been interesting in, in the 2000s for Montgomery County in particular is that the county was actually making progress against poverty before the recession. We saw the poverty rate fall uh, between 2000 and 2007, and the number of residents living in poverty declined. But once the housing market collapsed, the number of people struggling to make ends meet started to rise. Nibon says 10 percent of Silver Spring residents now live below the federal poverty line of about $24,000 for a family of four. It's a trend that can be hard to see in many parts of Silver Spring, because poverty here tends to be concentrated in little enclaves around the community. You have some neighborhoods that have poverty rates of upwards of 20 percent and others that have poverty rates around 1 percent. So it's a real range depending on where you live in Silver Spring. Many of those struggling to make it are single moms, like Vanessa. I meet her and her two-year-old son Alex at a coffee shop in the heart of Silver Spring's redeveloped downtown. They have no napkins. I have to ask. Yeah, it's busy in here today. (laughs) Vanessa is not this woman's real name. She asked that we use a pseudonym to protect her privacy. Silver Spring is getting more and more expensive. Um, That's why I live the way I do, you know, with roommates and so forth, just to make it. Even with those roommates, Vanessa has a hard time making ends meet. She tempts as a receptionist, which can pay as much as $15 an hour. But her paychecks aren't consistent. She doesn't have any family in the area and has to pay someone to watch her child. 
basically, I have to figure out, you know, my babysitting situation, get a babysitter. Because with temp jobs, it's usually the night before that they call you, or even the day of, um, to fill in for someone else who might have called in sick or whatever. Vanessa has an associate's degree in criminal justice. And in an ideal world, she says she'd go back to school and eventually own her own restaurant. But what she'd really like, what she's desperate for at the moment, is a steady job with health insurance. It's very hard um, when it's time to pay rent. You know, things are very tight every month. That's how it works. I, I try to plan ahead and put money to the side as much as I can um, to make it, you know, for the next month. So it's a juggle. Across town, at a nonprofit not far from Georgia Avenue in the Beltway, workers are engaged in a different sort of juggle, hauling couches and TVs and coffee tables into a 25,000-square-foot warehouse. This furniture showroom, where you can see about 12 couches here and 12 dressers, had uh, many of these were not here this morning. So the, this row right here was not here this morning, and half of these dressers are new to today. But there were other dressers that were here when we started the day, and they're all gone. Mark Bergell is the founder and executive director of A Wider Circle, which provides furniture to low-income families, along with job training and other services. A Wider Circle also organized the Conference on Poverty that was held in Silver Spring last week. Poverty is a crisis uh, like maybe no other crisis we have from a social perspective. So I have no uh, desire to serve a little bit or do something really nice for people. I have a desire only to see poverty end. Burgell says to understand poverty in Montgomery County, and in Silver Spring in particular, you have to look beyond the federal poverty line. So in Montgomery County, if you're a mother of three kids or you're a family of four, you need about $80,000 to really live independently, not depend on others for basic need items. So the poverty numbers are dramatically lower than the need numbers, if that makes any sense. And um, in Silver Spring, like most places in the country, the numbers are growing. Bergell expects those numbers to continue growing over the next five to ten years. But beyond that point, he's optimistic that things will turn around, both nationally and in the neighborhoods he serves. Silver Spring is, to me, represents a a lot of the potential that we have. In other words, there is still a lot of uh, diversity in terms of the types of folks who live and socialize in Silver Spring. But there are pockets, deep pockets of poverty uh, that we ought to go ahead and prioritize and say, Montgomery County will shine when those neighborhoods shine. I'm Tara Boyle. We have extended interviews with some of the folks who took part in that conference on poverty Tara mentioned. You can find them on our website, metroconnection.org. Changing economics in Silver Spring aren't just affecting residents. They're affecting businesses, too. And our next story takes us to three businesses in the area, all of them specializing in the same thing. Vinyl. Indeed, Silver Spring boasts three record stores, with another one slated to open up this summer. Lauren Landau brings us this story on what makes Silver Spring a destination for record collectors and what redevelopment could mean for the future of this robust music store scene. When Oxon Hill resident Barbara Hawkins walks into Roadhouse Oldies in Silver Spring, it's clear she is a woman on a mission. I had come here to pick up an oldie but goodie song that I'm interested in, someone told me about, and I really like it, so I want to check it out. She isn't sure about the song's name, but she sings a few bars for me. Going to Vietnam, 
Fighting for your country. Hopefully I find it. And within just a few minutes, store owner Alan Lee does. That's it. The players sing that. That's it, cat. <laughs> Roadhouse Oldies is one of three record stores in Silver Spring, and it's been in town the longest. It sells CDs and cassettes in addition to records and is celebrating its 40th anniversary this month. Owner Alan Lee says the store has moved twice since opening in 1974 in the back of a bookshop on Sligo Avenue. But he hasn't strayed from Silver Spring. Silver Spring is just a geographically advantageous location. You know, if I want to go to a music store, but I think about driving into downtown D.C. and what a hassle that is. Here I'm five minutes from the Beltway. He says a few shops and chains have come and gone, but at least one thing has remained constant. Roadhouse Oldies' dedication to a specific genre of music. We've always only sold oldies. It's interesting, when we first opened in 74, disco was hot and 70s rock music was hot at that time, and we were kind of rejecting that kind of music and selling 50s and 60s music. As times have changed, now we sell 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s music, but we specialize in soul music. We always have That's our niche. Another store, the Record Exchange, moved to town in 1999, and four years ago, Joe's Record Paradise joined the party. The three stores are within a five-minute walk of each other, but the owners say their relationship is more symbiotic than it is competitive. Sam Locke owns the Record Exchange and says he was initially wary when he heard Joe's Record Paradise would be moving into a 6,000-square-foot space just four doors down from his store. We were like, oh, what do we do, you know? But they've done nothing but help us. I mean, we sell more vinyl now than we did before they moved in, and I think it's, it's definitely worth the trip for your vinyl buyer now to come up from D.C. to hit all three stores. They can get a little bit from each store, hopefully, and I think we're all benefiting from the trifecta. Locke says business has doubled since Joe's came to town, but he thinks the boost in sales can also be attributed to the renewed interest in vinyl. Vinyl is more in vogue right now, and there's a lot more youngsters buying vinyl than there were four years ago. He says Silver Spring, like other towns with multiple record stores, is a destination for collectors. Johnson Lee at Joe's Record Paradise agrees. Here we have something that probably most definitely didn't make it to CD. It's a rising, it's like a Richmond psychedelic group from the late 60s or early 70s. And it's just the kind of thing I'll probably only see once in my life. Joe's Record Paradise got its start in 1974 and has moved around since then. Silver Spring has been home for four years now and Lee says he'd like to stay. But if rent prices spike, he might not have a choice. My family has a lot of history in Silver Spring, so I love the town. For us, it's rent. If we get uh, pushed out because of rent, once we move from here, if I can't find another place that's affordable, we'll move on. It's just kind of the, the way the business goes. Sam Locke at the Record Exchange is also worried about what redevelopment could mean for his store's future. We're coming to a crossroads in Silver Spring because in two years they're going to knock this block down and build condos and retail. So we have to decide, do we want to find another location in Silver Spring or do we want to move back into D.C.? And over at Roadhouse Oldies, Alan Lee is also facing the prospect of relocating yet again. I mean, our landlord has told us eventually the building we're in now will come down, but, you know, that could be two years away, it could be five years away. Eventually we're going to have to make the serious decision of whether to, uh, you know, move or just call it a day. Unlike Record Exchange and Joe's Record Paradise, Roadhouse Oldies has another issue to worry about. 
attracting new listeners to old music. Our customers are literally dying away <laughs> and moving to Florida. Kids find oldies cool, but you know there's not a lot of 20-year-olds that, that buy uh, 50s doo-wop music or, or you know 50s rockabilly or that kind of stuff. So uh, if we had to rely on the kids, we'd, we'd be in big trouble. Lee says his vinyl sales are shrinking as older customers increasingly prefer CDs. But whether you're 27 or 72 looking for Sam Cooke, The Bad Brains, or The Beatles, chances are one of Silver Springs record stores has something up its sleeves. I'm Lauren Landau. Record stores all over the region and all over the world are taking part in Record Store Day on April 19th. There will be special performances, releases of new music, all kinds of good stuff. You can learn more about it on our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, 64 years ago, the Flower Theater opened to great fanfare. We'll hear what's become of it since. I saw things as far back as probably second or third grade. I remember seeing the fox and the hound here. Yeah. Is one of us going to tear up during the interview? (laughs) I'm tearing up right now. (laughs) And we'll try for a strike at one of the region's very last duck pin bowling alleys. Most people do view this as a kid's game. But all you have to do is come in here and talk to some of these adults who've been bowling a game for 40 years, and they'll tell you otherwise. Stay with us. Those stories are just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And this week we're zipping around the community that brought us everyone from Lewis Black to Goldie Hawn to Dominique Dawes. Silver Spring, Maryland. Before the break, we discussed the struggles of low-income residents and why lines at local food pantries are growing. We also looked at the revitalization of the downtown area, including the rebirth of the AFI Silver, a historic and beloved theater that first opened in 1938. Well, our next story takes us to another historic and beloved theater in Silver Spring. Hi. Are you Rebecca? I'm Rebecca. I'm Phil. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Sue. Hi, good to meet you. A theater that first opened in 1950. Phil and Sue Gozier grew up within blocks of the Flower Theater, a brick and limestone Art Deco building here on Flower Avenue near Piney Branch Road. Yeah, I grew up, I think a street over, right? Mm-hmm. And he grew up in Pershing Drive, Dale Drive, or something yeah, around just there. Just about a half a mile that way. Back in 1989, this is where Phil and Sue met and fell in love. At that point, The Flower was a second-run movie house. There was a Bond movie out at the time. It was, uh, what's his name? Roger Moore? Yeah, Roger Moore. I think it might be Roger Moore. Its original one big screen now supplanted by four smaller ones. Sue was a high school junior, and Phil was a recently graduated senior. I was working right there in the um, box office selling tickets. The now shuttered box office. The shuttered box office, which, yeah, it's kind of that's kind of disappointing to see, but... But no, the first time I saw my wife, I, I remember distinctly, I looked up, and there she was, and she was, you can see, she's very beautiful, and, and struck me, uh, and I kind of leaned on the manager to sort of push her application to the front, and so she got hired. Soon after that, Phil and Sue got together, and since Sue's parents actually forbade her from dating... I was not allowed to date until I finished college, basically. All of their dates happened 
at the theater. So you would tell your parents you're going to work when really you were going on a date? Uh, yeah, something like that. He dated at the theater. They let us in for free. (laughs) (laughs) And now, 25 years later, though they've moved out to Olney, Phil and Sue are married with children. Your basic happily ever after story. As for the flower, well, as you can probably guess from the shuttered box office, its ending wasn't quite as happy. It stopped showing movies in 1996. Now it's being used by a Spanish-language church. But, says Claire Kelly, who works in historic preservation with the Montgomery County Planning Department, even if the Flower Theater didn't get a true happily ever after, back in February 1950, it certainly got quite the marvelous once upon a time. It was a huge deal, opening day, that Tacoma Park High School band played. It was broadcast on WGAY. They had a Bob Hope film. Do we know which one? The Great Lover. (laughs) It also was a real state-of-the-art theater. It had air conditioning, which was new in early 1950. They had a nursery, which was affectionately known as the crying room. (laughs) It's where parents could take their fussy children and still see the movie. And goodness knows there were plenty of parents with children fussy or not. Population in the greater Silver Spring area had been booming since the 1930s. And Fred S. Kogod, co-owner of KB Entertainment Company and primary developer of what would become the Flower Shopping Center, took notice. New Deal workers came here to the area, and there was a lot of residential development in the 30s. And so he saw a need for retail, but also for entertainment for folks who were moving here. That's why he developed the Flower Theater as a park and shop a type of shopping parking complex indigenous to the Washington, D.C. area. The prototype was the Connecticut Avenue Park and Shop in Cleveland Park, with its L-shaped arrangement of stores around a parking forecourt. It was really a full-service community center that had both staples and also specialty shops. Which, in the case of the Flower Shopping Center, consisted of everything from a bakery to a barber to a children's clothing store, as well as larger anchors, Giant Grocery, Whelan's Drugstore, Woolworth's, and, of course, the Flower Theater, which actually led a bit of a double life. When it first opened, there weren't any other community buildings around. So there was a community co-op that had classes here. There was this large Jewish population. There was no synagogue in 1950, and so they had religious services uh, here. But as we know, the Flower Theater eventually fell on harder times. It actually closed for a spell in the late 1970s before reopening in the 80s, which of course is a good thing for our sweethearts, Phil and Sue Gozier. We haven't been over here in a while. We get real nostalgic coming to this neighborhood. Yeah, this theater was very um, quaint. You know, everybody knows everybody, and it was fun. We yeah. thought it was the coolest was, theater ever. It was kind of, kind of a cornerstone or one of, the, one of the central spots for this block here. Nowadays, a smattering of shops do remain in the parking shop, a dollar store, a much-renovated giant, but the theater hasn't really been a central spot for the community in quite a while. Still, flower fans can take heart. The Montgomery County Council has designated the theater a historic site, so its facade and front lobby area will be preserved. Additionally, the council has stated that new buildings along Flower Avenue should not rise above the theater's height. So, even if the Flower Theater's silver screens went dark long, long ago, the theater itself, and all its accompanying memories, can keep shining on. We have photos of the Flower Theater then and now on our website, metroconnection.org.
So nine years after the Flower Theater opened, another entertainment destination appeared in Silver Spring. The White Oak Duckpin Lanes hit the scene in 1959. And as its name suggests, it specialized in a unique brand of bowling known as Duckpin. Since then, the bowling alley has hosted countless senior leagues, birthday parties, and cosmic bowling nights. Ralph Curry purchased the place in 1979. He shared his story with Metro Connection's Lauren Ober. Most people do view this as a kid's game. I guess because of the name, Duck Pens, and they see so many little kids bowling a game. But all you have to do is come in here and talk to some of these adults who've been bowling a game for 40 years, and they'll tell you otherwise. It said it was started in Baltimore by two baseball players who played for the Orioles, the old Orioles, and basically they bowled the other game, 10 pins, and they took some 10 pins and whittled them down and made them smaller. Somehow they got a smaller ball. And the first time they hit them, they kind of flew. So remind you of a pack of ducks flying. And that's where the name come from. Duck pin bowling, to me, is a very hard game. Basically, you grip the ball like you would a softball. As far as measurements, the pins are smaller, but they're on the same lanes that the big pins are on, 10 pins. You know, they're set the same distance apart, and pretty much, you know, scores are a little lower. And you do get to roll the ball three times. The strategy, I think, more than 10 pins is you have to make your spares. You know, and that's what makes this game a little harder. Most people in duck pins, they throw a little curve to the ball or a straight ball. You have to hit the pocket that's between the 1-3 pin and the 1-2 pin. That's where you aim for. But I just think even though the game's hard, it's so exciting when you get strikes because you don't get as many strikes in this game as you do with 10 pins, a big ball. Stay up, stay up. Beautiful. Basically, a lot of the equipment here is original equipment. The pin setters are original. It'll take you back into nostalgia. You do have to keep score yourself. We're not automated, so you have to use a pencil and cheat, score sheets. And we do have a lot of people that love that. So it works out nice. If you come in here on a weekend, you're going to find the whole gamut of people. I mean, we have people in their 90s bowling, the little kids three years old bowling, you know, and they just love it. I started at the age of 13 in a bowling center in Hagerstown, Maryland, as a pin boy. Our job was to be down there in the pits, roll the balls back as they rolled them, and then set up 10 pins for each bowler before the automatic pin setters, setting them up by hand. And that's where my love came from for the game. It was a back-breaking job because there was a lot of bending to it, you know. And uh, basically, once you got good enough, you set two lanes. When the pin setter first came out, we were actually a little quicker, so we liked that part of it. <laughs> 56, 57, somewhere in that period, uh, I noticed that there would be a need for mechanics to work on the pin setter. So I asked the owner, and he said, sure. What they would do, they would send you out on the road to do installations, installing the machines, and that's where you got most of your experience. I had no really mechanical experience. My father was very good with his hands. I fixed my bicycle chain. That was it. <laughs> and then I became a manager of a bowling center in Winchester, Virginia. And then I also, uh, after about three years there, I bought in as partnership. Myself and another gentleman owned that one for seven years. And then we sold that center and bought this center. It was one of the busiest ones on the East Coast. Well, this place right now has three more years left on the lease. 
So uh, 2017, I'll have to look at the lease, you know, because rents keep going up. So that'll be a big uh, decision maker at that point, whether this center stays open. I hope it does. Whether I'm here or not, I would like to see this center stay here so people have something to do in this area. Over the years, uh, we've just tried to keep it a family place, you know. Like any other business, you know, you're not going to make everybody happy. But I think we do a very good job here. It's been here so long, and it's so established. I mean, we have people now that come back here. Kids that were in youth league here are now bringing their kids back here to bowl. And, you know, we have the bumpers now. The bumpers really help. It would probably help you. I'm sorry, I should add that. <laughs> you, can, you can get that out, right? <laughs> that was Ralph Curry, owner of the White Oak Duck Pin Lanes. Want to see bowlers trying to get some of those elusive duck pin strikes? We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Jacob Fenston, Tara Boyle, Lauren Ober, and Lauren Landau. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We have info on all the music we use on MetroConnection.org. Just click a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show we're calling Origins. We'll go on an archaeological dig at Baltimore's Fort McHenry. We'll get a peek at an upcoming museum dedicated to D.C.'s Jewish community. And we'll hear why the founders of the Folger Shakespeare Library had what's been called a double love story. Plus, as Washingtonians debate whether our football team should change its name, we'll find out how Native American imagery got worked into athletics in the first place. The use of red for Indians appears in 1725 in talks between Indian chiefs and colonial officials. And it's what the Indians use. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.